we're going to discuss the idea of why be a Christian this evening. Our, our basic answer to that is because it gives you your bearings. It gives you uh, who you are, direction, and some other things. And those are some of the aspects we're going to look at. But before we start breaking those down and look at those aspects, I want, I want to back up a little bit. And I want you to think sometime when maybe you've been talking to someone else about, you know, you really need Christ in your life. You need to think about getting right with the Lord and whatever their situation was. And they just give you this dumbfounded look like, why in the world would I want to be a part of Christianity? Do you, have, do you have acquaintance or friends that do that to you? They're really just steeped in the world. They may not be really immoral people in the sense that, you know, they're just wallowing in the gutter. But when you talk to them about involvement in the local congregation, they just give you that look like, why would I be such an idiot to do that? Now, what we have to do there is we've got to be very careful. We've got to try to put ourselves in their shoes and see it from their perspective. We sit here, especially our Sunday night crowd, and we sit here from a perspective where it's old 90% all positive, if not 95 or 98% positive. And from our perspective, it's quite good looking. It's enjoyable. It satisfies us on a lot of different levels. And we can't imagine, and I know I've said just straight out to many folks, I can't imagine living life without a church family. It just boggles my mind how, now don't get me too wrong here, but it boggles my mind how the Hardy's Morning Coffee group would be my only family, if, if you know what I'm saying. Now, we have a good time, but we don't have the Hardy's what we have here. You know what I'm saying. Uh, we go other places and have a little fun here and there, but in those other places, we don't have what we have here on a spiritual, social, connected level where we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you have to pause a moment. And instead of bowing up, which is our first inclination, we want to get offended because they've just rejected something that's really valuable to us, and try to get their perspective for a moment. And when you do that, I would guess, never having been just totally steeped in the world, I've been ra raised in a religious environment of one sort or another all my life, but I would guess from the person from outside, when they look at the religious community in general, they see things like Jimmy Swaggart, Jimmy Baker, they think of things like Jim Jones and some really bad Kool-Aid. They think of things that just aren't very pleasant. They know all the bad things that have happened. They know things that have been in the news about priests that ought never to happen, you know. And so they look at all this religious landscape, and I speculate what they see is basically a landfill. Been to a landfill? Big old nasty, stinky, rotten place, and they look across the fence, and there you are on the other side of the fence going, come on, come on, you're going to love it. This is great. This is wonderful. And they're going, no, nah, you got to be kidding. I don't think so. Now, when you stop and consider what their experience and exposure has been, and you stop and consider that every time Hollywood portrays religious people, we're a bunch of buffoons and goofs and idiots, can you really blame them for looking at you like you've just tried to hand them some of that bad Kool-Aid? I can't, and I'm not going to deny the things that they've seen. Jimmy Swaggart did what Jimmy Swaggart did, and we all got a black eye because of it. I know he's not teaching the truth, and you know he's not teaching the truth, but our friends on the other side of the fence just lump us all together, and they go, oh, you're one of them religious people, aren't you? I know what Jimmy Baker did was wrong, bad wrong, and the priests, they ought to be executed, in my opinion, for what they do, but nonetheless, we all get lumped together, and I'm not going to sit there and start arguing and defending things at that level with people who have a problem. I'm simply going to admit and say, yeah, you're right. And if they bring up Swaggart, I'm going to say, yeah, you're right. Of course, I'm also going to add, I'm glad he's not part of us. But, you know, I'm not going to get into an issue with them about what's right and what's wrong at that level because I can't win that one. They know what they saw. 
They know what they heard on the news. They know what they heard about the priest. They know what they heard about the TV evangelist. They know what they heard about the local preacher in their church who's in prison now because he molested so-and-so and so what have you. And we've gotten preachers from the Church of Christ that are in prison. I have an inmate student. I don't remember what denomination he is, but he was a preacher before the judge gave him a real long vacation. And it was for inappropriate behavior with one of his younger members. I mean, so this stuff's out there. And it happens. And now I'm knocking on your door, sitting across from you at the coffee shop, saying, you really ought to consider what we teach and what we practice. And I really, really think you enjoy being a member and a part of what we do. And they look at me with that incredulous look. You've got to be kidding. Why should they give up their safety? Why should they take the risk? Why should they venture out and expose themselves? And that's another good aspect because most of the people you and I are dealing with have settled into a routine. It's a life routine. It might not be completely satisfying, but chances are they pay the bills. They come in out of the rain. They've got three meals a day, a pretty good bed. And now I'm suggesting they do something that in their wild imagination may turn all their world upside down. Now, you and I know it's not. But in that wild imagination that runs through with fears and what have you, that's what they think. Why should they put themselves at risk and disturb their comfortable life? Well, I'm going to give you five reasons, and then later on, not in the series, but later on I have some more stuff I want to present along this line. One of the things I love about Christianity, and a lot of this is just going to be kind of a personal opinion, but I love the way it gives you who you are, your identity. I hear people talk about evolution, right? And we were all just this primordial pool of ooze somewhere, and one of these days we oozed out of it. Folks, I don't know about you, but I don't like to think that my great-great-great-grandpa, whoever oozed out of that primordial puddle of ooze, that, that, that doesn't do anything for my ego, my pride, my self-esteem, my anything. Basically, that says you're just some walking, talking mud. I'd like to think I'm a little bit more than just some walking, talking mud. I, I think you'd probably like to think that too. And what Christianity does is it, it puts us on a whole new wonderful level. As you're reading here, we were created in the image of God. Folks, that's marvelous stuff right there. That's fantastic stuff. Because what that means, that means God planned us. He didn't just accidentally make us and look at one of the angels and go, oops, I goofed, look, I created the earth. It took him seven, six days to do it. He rested on the seventh. But there was effort. There was intention. There was design. I don't know what kind of pre-planning God would do or need to do. That kind of boggles my mind to even think about that. But whatever was necessary, he did it. and He brought it all together. And he said, there's Adam and Eve. And I personally believe, and I think I'd use Isaiah 46.10 for this, that God looked down the corridor of time and saw everything that was coming. And he knew we'd mess it up. But he said, they're still worth it. And he knew we were coming each individually. I don't think he ever looked at the planet and said, Dave Miller? What? I didn't mean for there to be a Dave Miller. He knew a Dave Miller was coming all the way back there 6,000 years ago. And he knew there'd be a little fat guy on the stage in front of him named Clarence preaching at him. And he put it all together anyway, and he still let it come out. Now, that says something that answers some issues to my heart, that helps me with that whole Ecclesiastes 3.11, God put eternity in our hearts, and the who am I, and all of those stuff. That helps me. But to say there was that primordial puddle of ooze and we just oozed out of it, that doesn't help me at all. That kind of makes me feel worthless. And I don't like being worthless myself. Now, to go to Acts 17, 28, and 29, to give you just a little different take on the Genesis text, is that in Him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we, now this is the one I like, for we are also His offspring. Isn't that wonderful? That says relationship, which we'll talk about more in a minute. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature like gold, silver, stone, something shaped by art of man's devising. Since we're the offspring of God, that breath that you breathe, that spirit that enlivens you, that one that the Ecclesiastes writer Solomon would say returns to God when the 
body returns to the dust and the spirit returns to God. That, that spirit, I, and I don't know how it all works and you don't either, but when he made Adam and he breathed into him that breath of life, that, that spirit, we're, that's us. We're his, pardon the, the colloquial nature of this, we're his kids. Isn't that fantastic? That's wonderful. I'm part of a family. Not just the West 28th Avenue Church Christ family, which is really where we're going to identify the most, but I'm part of a bigger family that stretches all the way back to the beginning. And my ultimate parent is God, to play off the wording of being his offspring. Now, folks, that's a whole lot better than some Martians came by 6,000 years ago and dropped a couple of experiments off in a nice part of the planet, and then we just happened to get lucky and survive, and, and well, here we are. Now what? You know, and the whole Martian thing is a bunch of absurdity, too, because all that does is back up the question, because you know the next question, well, where did the Martians come from? Well, there was another planet, and they dropped them off on it. Well, then where did that one come from? Any way you go about it, you end up back at uh, who's our creator. What Christianity tells me is my creator is Jehovah Almighty, God. It's the one that some like to call Yahweh in Hebrew, and that's just fine too, and that answers a whole lot for me. Why should you be a Christian? Because without Christ, without the Bible, what, what do you got for identity? I can go back in my own mind to my grandparents. Now, some of you can go back to great-grandparents, and after that, how many people do you know that know, knew their great-great-grandparents? I'm sure it's happened, but like, it's really rare, doesn't it? And then it's just this list of names on a family tree, if anybody's put it together. And then you kind of wonder how they really know. And if you've ever looked at any of those old records, it's really kind of vague sometimes. But anyway, and then it just kind of fades out into oblivion. I don't like that. I like knowing. And so here's my choices. I can be a part of the body of Christ, and I can know who I am all the way back to eternity. Or I can just hang on with Walmart and Sears and the rest of the consumer-driven world and just be another number on somebody's account list and they're trying to get my money and I'm trying to get theirs. I don't like that. One other thing about this second point, next thing I like is it's purpose. Now, this is going to confuse you just a tad because I'm starting Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Whole duty of man is to fear God and keep His commandments. But if you remember last week, I was telling you that relationships have rules. And one of the things that we have to try to remember, and it's hard to do, is when you see these verses like keep his commandments, this is an employee-employer relationship here. This isn't I'm the dictator and I'm going to squash you if you don't do what you're supposed to do. This is relationship. When he said the whole duty of man is fear God to keep his commandments, he's telling us there's a relationship to be had with our creator. And the way to have that relationship is to obey the rules of relationships, which is what's laid out in the Bible. Now, let me just repeat what I repeated last week, folks. That, that's true in every relationship. There are rules in the marriage relationship, and you violate those, your marriage could very well end. There's rules in the parent-child relationship. Violate those too much, and that relationship could well end. There's rules in friendship. Violate those rules too much, that relationship's over too. We have a relationship with our Creator. Let's go on back to Genesis 3.18. And if we violate the rules too much, that relationship will end. But what Christianity gives us is that opportunity to have a relationship with our Creator. Genesis 3.18 talks about God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Why? Why did God come to the garden? Why is He walking in the garden? Because He wants a relationship. It's about having a relationship with the children He created. Now, Paul used the terminology, we are His offspring. Now, we understand that's a little different than how you and I would use the term. But... That's what these were. Adam and Eve were his first children, man and woman, and he wanted a relationship with them. That, that ought not to be awkward to us. Our first baby was Allison. They made me carry her to the nursery. I was like 22 and dumb and green as could be, but as excited as could be too. And then we had the next one, and then we had the grands and all that stuff, you know. And, and we get a lot of 
excitement out of the relationship there. Why do we do that? Because we're created in the image of God. God didn't create us just to stick us off on a rock somewhere and forget about us. He created man to come into the garden and walk with him and visit with him. Of course, you know the whole story about sin and how that kind of messed things up. But relationship is still part of the whole equation here. John 14, 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. What does that say? That says somebody wants a relationship with me longer than just the term of the contract so they can get all the interest money when I buy the car. Or longer than just so I can get them a car or send them to school or whatever earthly considerations there are. This is one that points to an eternal relationship. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That's purpose. It's, don't, don't emphasize so much the obedience, though that's essential. You've got to obey Him. But the reason for the obedience is not the end in itself, but it's that relationship that starts here with the blood of Christ and goes on into eternities in ways that I, I don't even know how to describe. I'll, I'll give you a couple of verses at the end of the lesson, but I don't know about heaven. The Bible doesn't say that much about heaven. Uh, what little we get out of Revelation is pretty exciting. Other, other than that, we know it's going to be a great place and we're going to have a wonderful relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, I think that's good stuff. First Thessalonians 4.13, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, why should you be a Christian? What's the non-Christian got? Seriously, what does the non-Christian have? Now, the non-Christian may be living a comfortable American life, and that's fine. I won't begrudge them that. They may have two or three cars, you know, and a bass boat and the TVs and, and the iPhones and the iPads and all that stuff and, and live in a nice enough house in a good enough neighborhood. But still, what do you got? They got nothing. Because when they die, now what do they got? What hope do they have? What future do they have? What purpose did their life serve? You say, I, I don't mind buying stuff in Walmart making a little profit off of me. I mean, that's just the way life works, right? They got to pay their employees and what have you. But I would like to think that there's a deeper purpose to life than just making the oil companies rich because I got to buy their gasoline that's way overpriced, in my humble opinion. I would like to think there's more to life than just paying outrageous medical bills and living to pay my taxes. I, all those things, I'm never going to escape those. But I'd sure like to think that when my life ends, there was something more there than he was just a consumer. And while he was alive, he generated income and we took it one way or the other, which is basically what it boils down to without Christ, isn't it? And I look at that life and I go, you know, that doesn't look like a lot of fun to me. It looks kind of empty, a little disheartening. So when I come over into the landfill, if you would, yeah, there's some stuff I need to be careful and not step in because the whole religious community in general is messed up. Don't, don't argue that point. We know it is. But if you can find that straight and narrow road that leads through all that stuff, that's a wonderful, wonderful path. And those of you who have found the meaning in your identity and found the meaning in your relationship with Christ know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, yeah, that's right. How, how could you live without Christ? One of the other things that we get is our history. Now, I'm going to take this in a way that you might not, but that, that's your business. We're not on some important doctrinal ground here, but I think there's substance to it. Uh, he says that um, when we, verse 27 is about putting Christ on in baptism. We come on down to verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, there according to the promise. My great, 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 and I don't have any greats to stick in there. Grandpa was Abraham. Now I realize I'm adopted. We'll talk about that in a minute too. But 
my family history, the way it runs in my head, I don't know about your head, but again, I can go back to my two grandfathers and my two grandmothers, and that's as far back. I know the names of the others, but they, they were deceased before I came along, so they, those are just names on a tombstone to me. And so my history pretty much ends with Grandpa Frisbee and Grandpa Phil, unless I have another source for my history, and I do. My history goes all the way back to the garden. My history runs all the way. I count that, and I don't know about you, but that's my identity. That's, that's really part of who I am. I grew up, literally grew up with the stories of David and Goliath, Noah and the ark, and just run through all the Bible stories, Daniel and the lion's den. As far as I'm concerned, that is my history. Now, I may be adopted, and that's fine, but that is my history. And so when I start trying to look at my family tree, I'm not worried too much about going down the library and running genealogical records to find my family tree. Now, you can do that if you want to. It's not wrong. But I'd just soon go back to Grandpa Fell and then jump from there to the Bible and say, now, here's the rest of my family tree. And yeah, I know there's a big 2,000-year gap there, but I'm not too worried about that one either because I'm pretty content with great, 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 great Grandpa David and Daniel and all the other guys in the Bible that are the heroes in our family tree which is a wonderful thing. I like having this part of my history filled in. So I go back to Abraham, and when he was told to get out of your country, from your family, your house, and go to a place I'll show you, that's, that's part of our history. I don't make that distinction between Judaism and Christianity in the same sense that uh, historians would. And I understand the difference between the Old and New Testament. But I, I just see one as a continuation of the other. And my, my way of thinking, there was that patriarchal dispensation. It just led right into the Mosaic dispensation. And when the time was fulfilled and it was time for the promise to be fulfilled, it just transitioned right on into the Christian dispensation. And we block them up into those three because it's a good study tool. But it's all one successive line. Here's where we're adopted. Now, Paul is using some figurative language here. He said, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Now, that's, see, that, that's where I get my, my hope, my joy. We were grafted in, we Gentiles. We were the wild olive tree. And when we were grafted in, we became partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. That is my heavenly father. If I'm Abraham's seed, if I'm in Christ, I'm Abraham's seed. That Christ, he is my creator. And that's true for everybody. And so here we are with this wonderful genealogy that Christianity provides us. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. That's who we are. Now, what has the world got? Well, they got a Walmart receipt. Somebody said they ate the other day. Well, that's okay. Nothing wrong with having a Walmart receipt. But I'd sure like something a little more for my history than that, wouldn't you? Um, got, got my car, got my house, got my stuff, got my little family tree. And we've had family members that went back and did some of our family tree stuff, which is always kind of entertaining and enlightening. It's a little better to remain with the fiction than to find out the truth. But anyway, I like my history this way. And I look at the world, and the world says, eh, you come from a long line of consumers. We got your money, we got their money, and we're going to keep getting it. I don't like that. Why be a Christian? Why take the chance? I think that's, enough. that's not a big reason, but it's a good reason. Our next reason, it gives you structure. We don't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, structure, we'll probably explore this in different avenues in later lessons when I repeat kind of some parts of this series of sorts. But, man, people need structure. People need some organization in their life. And I, I'm not talking about just basic management skills. I, I'm talking about the Word of God that gives them the foundation, some footing, some reason, some solidity to their life instead of, well, I, I just kind of exist, and one day I won't, and then it'll be over. 
They need something much more. I'm thinking Jeremiah 10, 23. We use that all the time. It's not a man who walks direct his own steps. Absolutely is not. He definitely needs, needs some help. He needs some light, which would be Psalms 119, 105, or a lot of other verses you could use there. But we need something that gives us direction. Because without direction, what do you really got? Without direction, you're really on your own. I don't know about you, but I've lived long enough to know I don't really need to be on my own. <laughs> I found out that on my own, separate apart from the Word of God, I'm just not really that smart. And so I need the Word of God to say, no, Clarence, this is the way you need to go right here. Follow the light. Follow the Bible. And if you'll follow the Bible, it sure makes the world a whole lot better. Now, i got a couple more verses, but I want you to pause and think a second. Think about the worldly people you know. Now, again, they may not be wallowing in the gutter all the time, you know. They may never wallow in the gutter. They may be good neighbors, good co-workers, fairly good citizens, but they really just they don't have that spiritual structure in their life. Do you know them well enough to see where things are missing, to see where they're still looking, but they don't want to look across the fence into religion because they've already decided that's a bad place to be? And so they're just perpetually empty. They're just perpetually searching. They, they never get to that point where they say, ah, I found it. They just... They miss it. They, they really need that structure. Now, let's talk about marriage for a moment and just these two. I've got to put the two together. Uh, I would use just verse 22, but then the men forget that verse 25 is there. I'd use just verse 25, but then the women forget verse 22 is there. So we kind of balance them out so that neither one forget, forgets their part. In marriage, this kind of structure, this is what we need. If we had a, a society that held on to this better structure as God gave it, then we're always going to have some divorce. You're never going to get rid of any sin entirely. And that's a, let me just side point you here. One of the rules, that, one of the things you've got to watch out for in counter-arguments is when they set up a standard that cannot be met. And that's like what they do in the capital punishment argument. They say, well, you might sometime execute an innocent guy, therefore you can execute no one. You see how that plays out? What we do is we set a standard and say, unless this law can be met 100% perfectly, then we can't have that law. There's always going to be divorce. There's always going to be crime of some sort or another. There's no way to get rid of it all permanently 100%. But it sure could be mitigated. It certainly could be reduced a whole lot. And structure is the way to do it. And God gives us that structure. Now, I can't change the world, so I'm not too worried about that. Really, I don't want to sound too selfish, but what I'm really looking for is to be sitting there in my rocking chair, old and gray, and Sharon sitting over there, still young and spry, and like she's 39, maybe 49 by that time, and being happy and joyful that we made it that far. And the Bible gives me that structure to make it that far. When she does what God tells her to do, and I don't worry about what she's supposed to be doing, I worry about my part, that's verse 25, and we both really focus in on doing what we're supposed to do, then unless death prevents us from reaching that 50th anniversary, then we're going to make it. How can you not? If the woman does her part and the guy does his part, how can you not make it and not make it joyfully there? I mean, that's their only option. That's just the way it works. The Bible gives us that structure. The Bible gives us, I'm going to do another odd twist here on you, Acts 20 and 35. This is just the very last part of that verse, and that's more blessed to give than receive. When a society learns to turn its thoughts and its cares and its efforts outward, and start saying, how can I make my community a better place? No, we do this on other levels. I, I don't know why we lose it on the social level. The Boy Scouts. When I was attempted to Boy Scouts, I wasn't a big scouting kind of guy. But the, one of the rules was you were to leave your campsite cleaner than it was when you got there. Simple rule, right? And a lot of organizations had little rules like that. It's more blessed to give 
than it is to receive is kind of what's going on there. And when you have a society that has that structure, when you have a group of people, a workplace, a church, a family that says my primary obligation is to give, to give back to this family, to give back to this church, to give back to my employer, which I realize that's getting tougher nowadays. It's become so corporate. But when, when more people have that attitude, then we have joy and happiness. Now, again, why be a Christian? I want you to compare people who share that, such as at this congregation where we have a pretty good record for watching out for one another. Now, I know we're not perfect, and then somebody falls through the cracks because nobody bats a thousand. But when, we, when we're there, we're doing pretty good. We got something. Now, what's the worldly person got? A bar? It's a bunch of drunks? A bowling team, maybe? where somebody might come by and visit you. Some co-workers that uh, probably send you a card and maybe drop by the hospital and visit you a time or two, which, which is good. I appreciate that. But uh, what does the worldly person outside of a good, strong church family, what do they really have? They don't have much. You know, some of them got a little. And some of them got absolutely nothing. You know, there's an organization in town, I forget the name of it, but they came and did a presentation, our Lions Club. And, and what they do is they help people who have nobody. These people are usually in some form of hospice care. So they're in their dying last six months, a couple of years now, and they've got no one to do anything for them. And so these volunteers are people who come by and say, hey, can I go get you a gallon of milk? Can I read you the newspaper? Can I change that light bulb for you? Can you imagine not having anyone except some stranger who's kind enough to volunteer? And I'm glad such people are around. But I look at the worldly, no structure, no accountability, no nothing. And then I look at us, and I think, you know what? I'll take us any day of the week, and twice on Sunday, as the, as the saying goes, because we got something. I, I don't know why people don't want it. Finally, because Christianity gives us hope beyond death. Now, I don't know why, again, everybody isn't just the most important thing at Hardee's and every other coffee place, why the most important topic isn't most commonly eternity. Because we all believe we're going, and you know how the joke is. Have you ever attended a funeral where the preacher got up and said, Oh, Fred was a good guy, but he went to hell. We don't do that, do we? Everybody that ever died in almost every funeral, with very rare exception, went on to a better, more glorious place. Well, how do we know? Because most of them didn't have any involvement in religion to start with. They got nothing. They got no hope. They got nothing. And I think the families really know that in the privacy of their own heart. Oh, we're not going to say it. We don't want to be rude and crude. But I know when my Aunt Peggy died, I know that I'm going to say the right thing to my dad since that's his sister. But we both know she hadn't seen a church building so long she wouldn't have recognized one if she'd run into it with a car. I mean, it was that bad. So, you know, so you're standing there and you, you say comforting things to one another. But what do you really got? Incidentally, Aunt Peggy's funeral, Dad and I were the only attendees there. There's your worldly life, isn't it? Well, that's the way I want to live. I want to live that the apartment manager says, well, we got an open unit now. Wonder who we can get to fill it. And that was all your whole life really amounted to. We got something so much more. You know who's living in the landfill? <laughs> I know the religious community, the landscape's got some trash in it, and I wish we could clean it up, but I'm not going to get that opportunity. But you know what's even trashier? Is that when these people on the other side of the fence wake up and look at what they really got, they're going to die and they got nothing. Here's what we've got. These are my two feeble attempts to give you a little insight into eternity, and then I'm going to close the lesson. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Yeah, we got that. No more death, nor sorrow, no crying, no more pain. Former things have passed away. No more tooth extractions. 
No more knee replacements. Where's Linda? She's down in Warren, right? No more brother George breaking his hip in three places and having surgery. No more sister Betty in the hospital now for two weeks. No more of that stuff. It's all gone. You outside of Christ? Well, you got Revelation 21.8, fire and brimstone and so on and so forth. We're not going there right now. Last verse, Revelation 22.14. Blessed are those who do His commandments because you've got a right to the tree of life and you can enter the gates of the city. Why be a Christian? We're not perfect, guarantee you. We mess up sometimes, absolutely. And when Christians start butting heads, there's nothing much uglier than when a church starts splitting. I'll agree with that too. I'll avoid that with everything I got. But when it's going okay to good, I wouldn't take a billion dollars for it. No way, no how. Because church and what we've got compared to what, well, I was gonna say what they have, the problem is they don't have anything. Compared to their condition, it's priceless. We've got it made. No, I guess the closing point would be, and we're all good Christian brethren and sisters here this evening, I guess the point would be, do you realize what all you got and where you set, the opportunities, the blessing, the treasures you do possess? I hope you do. And I hope if you get a chance to tell somebody, hey, I know we got a lot of messed up stuff on this side of the fence, but we got a lot of good stuff too. We really do. If you're not partaking in that good stuff, and you need to make a change and we can help you publicly. We're here to do so in whatever way we